Welcome to Dave's Psychology Lectures, Malgoma University. I'm Dave Broadbeck. The following lecture is from uh, Psychology 4006. Uh, it's a new one for everybody out there. Uh, History of Psychology. Hope you enjoy it. I think that's great though. Why not? Why not be the frog? Yeah. And, and then her dad was going up there and he was supposed to be the frog. So then it shows him in the background dressed up as the princess. You know, my, I, I, I would do that if I could. Well, you should. It would be a problem. That's fine. It's, it's their holiday. Yeah. You know? You just eat their things. So. Oh, yeah. You have to test the <laughs> tested pictures of poison. Uh, my dad used to always, every year, he'd say, Oh, uh, no, this is homemade fudge. You can't have this. <laughs> this could be poison. <laughs> You know, that's all in the myth, right? All that stuff, but I mean, it has happened, but it is so exceedingly rare. Yeah. It's all uh, basically Winchelsea by, by proxy by the kids, by parents. Or it's urban, it's like the razor blade, the, the, the apple, and all that stuff. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely topic for you Monday morning. Uh, the topic is the topic of revolution. Um, so that's what we'll talk about today. It's our last, the last cool thing I'm going to talk about. Um, now, it's all been leading up to this, and really this is where we are today. Academic psychology, especially in North America, and even in Europe, had become behaviorism. I think the, the article that I said to you guys, the Mandel article, he mentions how hard it was for people even studying non studying humans to get articles published. Like it was even to that point, right? So it's the point where it's very difficult for everybody who isn't a behaviorist. Um, so especially in North America, there were holdouts. Uh, there was the Gestaltists who we talked about last time. There was Bartlett over in the UK, and Bartlett did some amazing work on memory reconstruction. Um, at least. One of you, two of you, I think in this class took memory with me a couple of years ago, right? Uh, and uh, I talked about Bartlett and how he was the guy who talked about how gist was important rather than actually memorizing sentences. And that's actually go runs counter, in fact, to what the behaviorists would say. However, he was in the UK, he was in North America. So, in, you know, psychology over the years has become a very North American discipline. Why that's true is an interesting question. I don't know what the answer to that is. It's a, it, indeed, it's, it's a very Canadian discipline. We're very strong in psychology in Canada. And again, I, it's just done luck. I don't know why that is. Um, but the question, I guess you have to ask yourself, is what was the alternative scientifically? Not what was the alternative. We know what the alternatives are. But is it Freud? Well, if you're a scientist, no. Right? If you believe in the scientific method, if you think that's a sensible way to approach things, Freud isn't science. Freud is myth. Freud is, you can't falsify it, right? It can't be tested. Or it, there's a few things that maybe can be. I remember reading a paper from the 1940s about repression and people identifying words. And they had words that were either neutral or words that were sexual. And people identified this, uh, sexual words as words. And they, 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 they get them all right with their words and numbers. And they're using uh, reaction time, which took them a little longer to identify the sexual words, which makes you think maybe they're quote, repressing. The other possibility is that maybe words that are less common. Another possibility is maybe just people are embarrassed 
by those words. It doesn't have to be repression in any sorts. But that's something one could conceivably maybe study some things, but the basic tenets of Freudian theory you cannot study scientifically. Because it's always contradictory. Right? You think about like if you have an anal fixation, you're either anal expulsive or anal retentive. Oh, I see. So you're either a mess or really clean. <laughs> ah. You have sex with your mother kill your father? No, oh, you're repressing. Yes. Well, you're correct, and I'd like to, on my theory is correct, and now please call the authorities. So, it's not falsifiable. And it doesn't get a lot of, among the clinical community, it has some cachet, I guess, at the time, but even then, the, the Neo Freudians, you know, were breaking away, saying, come on, everything is about sex at that level. So it's not falsifiable. So you had physiological types, um, basically. So that's sort of one kind of psychology. You had the uh, physiological psychologists, people doing stuff with heart rate, stuff with some, some sort of stuff. Today we might call neuroscience. Yeah, today we call it neuroscience, probably pretty basic compared to today, but that's fine. You had some people doing stuff with testing, so you had people doing IQ testing, you had people developing questionnaires. Uh, there's some really classic work in, in, in social and personality psych, especially just right after World War I, in the war period, and during and after World War II. A lot of that had to do with identifying people, soldiers for the right kind of job in the military. Right. We talked about using IQ testing and how it affected um, immigration policy in the States. So you had some people doing that. You had people still doing psychophysics, doing perception and sensation. And you had behaviorism. People had thrown off introspection in that sort of titularian sense, which is a good thing. But the behaviorists really influenced everyone. People were studying what today we would call human memory, but they talk about verbal learning, so it was all stimulus response. Right? So everything was, was so heavily influenced by behaviorism. So people studied memory, like I said, they called it verbal learning. Right? Um, and really, it's just Skinnerian psychology with people. Uh, one of these old-time verbal learner guys was actually on my, was my external advisor on my master's thesis. And he's a great scientist, really solid methodologically, but anyway, exceedingly funny. I used to always bum cigarettes off of me, but I smoked when I was in graduate school. Um, and he'd take the filters off and smoke them beautifully. So it was after the Departmental Colloquia on Wednesday afternoons. So we had the Departmental Colloquia, and then there would be free beer. Because they had to get me to come to the meeting talks. Now, the way they got master's students to come to the talks, if you didn't come to the talks, you got called down to the department chair's office and asked, what, what the hell were you about to talk? More senior graduate students didn't have to go. But those free beer. 
cannabis. And uh, once enough people had gone, we just smoke because it was 1988. Um, <laughs> we weren't supposed to, but nobody cared. And Norm Slomek, it wasn't that, that was come up with Norm It's funny, I remember him, he was holding out against the cognitive people, and one day Endel Tulvin was talking about semantic and episodic memory, and Endel said, semantic memory is knowing what breakfast is, and episodic memory is knowing what you had for breakfast. And Norm said, oh yes, of course, breakfast memory. Like he was mocking it, which was just beautiful. Norm was a great guy. But he, you know, would say that there was no cognition. And it wasn't interesting. So then, okay, they get greedy. As I said, Skinner publishes a paper that says language is just conditioning. Really? Like, he really said this. He even had a clever little demonstration, I should put clever in scare quotes there, where he teaches a pigeon language. Now, he doesn't. Let me say but he has the pigeon, two pigeons, and they're trained to peck at slides that say, hello, how are you? And <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it's stupid. It's stupid. I hate saying bad things about Skinner, because as I've told you, everything I've heard is he was this super nice man, but... Wouldn't they peck anyways? They gotta peck at the right time. Yeah. Make choices. When I was a kid, you'd go to the, um, having grown up in southwestern Ontario, there'd be fairs, the fall fair every year. And there was always the, um, so the Western Fair was a very big fair. And there was always an agricultural part of it. And so there was cows and prize horses and pigs and rides and funnel cakes and bands and drunk teenagers. But there was always a demonstration of animal intelligence. And it was stupid. Traveling kind of thing, there'd always be a thing where there'd be you'd play tic-tac-toe against a chicken, and the chicken would pet, or a pigeon. The thing is, and it used to be amazing the thing can hold me to a time. Anybody can teach a pigeon to do that. It's just a classical condition or opera condition. It's really simple, right? So that's what he's doing here. Skinner also taught pigeons to play ping pong through shaping. With, with, with their beaks having the uh paddles attached to their beaks and back and forth. Skinner had some free time. Um, <laughs> so he actually says this, though, and I've always wondered if he believed it. Because that's a little far, I think, for most people. Everything up to here, and then, you know, psychology's going along, like, yeah, sure, we're productive, that's great. And it's like, yeah, language also, all conditioning. So this is where the behaviorists got, I guess, they got greedy. They kind of crossed the line. So Noam Chomsky comes along, and who's a, maybe you can get a feel from that my politics aren't exactly the same as his, but that quote, um, but he says, he's a, he's a linguist, and he writes a pretty scathing response, which, I mean, we all today agree with. Um, people have called him the father of cognitive science. And he outlines this notion of the universal grammar. Which is, again, he's probably wrong too, linguists will tell you today, but he's more right than Skinner was. And that's fine. I mean, usually the two you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, right? 
Um, this is the notion that all languages have nouns, all languages have verbs, all languages have adverbs, adjectives, blah, blah, blah. There's a deep structure to language, and it's the same no matter what the language is you're speaking, right? So he's saying there's something, the ability to speak language is a human, is something that is, is first of all, uniquely human, and it's something that we're built to do, we're built to learn language. And today, that's pretty accepted. We aren't born with the ability to speak English or French or, I don't know, whatever language you want to pick, but we are born with the ability to learn language, to learn new language. And that language can be symbolic, or is it symbolic, syntactic. It can also be like sign language. It doesn't have to be spoken. Language is a special, uniquely human thing. And again, sometimes you get people coming back with these ape language project things, coming back saying, no, we can teach an ape sign language, but it isn't really the same. In fact, Herb Terrace at Columbia University had a chance to be attempted to teach sign language <coughs> using all the protocols that everyone always used, and it turned out that all it was doing was imitation, which is impressive. Imitation is impressive, but it's not language. The chimp's name was named Chimp Steve. <laughs> I kid you not, so that's one of them. So the Nim Chimpsky project shows that chimps aren't really learning. They're learning something special and interesting and cool. They're just not learning language the way humans do. Okay? So basically, it's not just awkward conditioning. There's something special in language, and most of us in psychology takes notice. He's a, a linguist, a psycholinguist, you might say. Um, and people do notice this because, again, they think, come on, scary, you've taken it too far. It can't. This can't be true. Right. So, the question so far? Chomsky. Then HM comes along. That's not HM, that's Brenda Miller, so Stolgo and Miller. You know the case of HM, this is where HM shows up and he's got a, uh, he's got a horrible uh, epilepsy. The epilepsy seems to happen, it starts, it seems, in the hippocampus. So Stolgo moves his hippocampus. That's what they used to do. When you couldn't control the drugs. They didn't know what hippocampus did, which is a shame, because it's kind of important for, say, forming episodic memories. So you guys all know that story. At the time, they said he couldn't form new long-term memories, which fit nicely with the Atkins and Schiffer model. But uh, Brenda Miller was smart enough to say, I bet he can learn something. So she had him do mirror tracing. Brenda had a, has a PhD in um, psychology, which I believe she got in 1940. That's how old Brenda is, and she's still around. And I wish to hell someone would nominate her for a freaking Nobel Prize because she should win a Nobel Prize for physiology and medicine. She has done, she invented cognitive neuroscience, just a little thing. Her and Donald have basically invented cognitive neuroscience. She goes to heaven and says, you know what I can do? Why don't I go and see this case that Scoville has operated on and I can do mirror tracing with him. Do you know mirror tracing? This is when you have a star, this, those of you guys have memory with me all about this. So it's a, this is printed on a page. And then you're supposed to keep your, you're supposed to do this. Now that's pretty easy. It's hard to do if you can only look in the mirror while you do it. What do you mean in the mirror? 
you look in a mirror and say, this is a piece of paper, there's a mirror here. Like that. And then there's a reflection of the star in the so mirror. So you draw on the other side? Or you draw it here, but you're looking into the mirror. So up is down, left, uh, up is down, left is right. It's hard. It's hard at first, because up is down, left is right, but it becomes easy very quickly. In 10 minutes, you can do it. Perfect. Yeah. So it's not like the geometry, geometry thing that you do, like when you're little. You no. Know, okay. It's yeah. the other way. But that would be that would work too. Any, anything where. Yeah, look at the mirror trees and we'll see. Yeah, maybe 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 you won't. Who knows what comes up? Probably. Uh, grapes. <laughs> grapes came up. Grapes. You got the safe search turned on. If you have trying to be one. Um. Or things go wrong. It's the canyon. That's, that's the whole internet. That's all just. So you look into this mirror, you've got this thing here. So when you're like, you're, you're told, go stay inside the lines, you look and you go, oh, you, you want to go up because it's up here, except it's down. And you want to go to the right, but it's to the left. It's that kind of thing. It's hard. But it's easy to learn to do. And once you know how to do it, once you've learned it, you can do it again more. Easy. Easy. So you can't see what you're actually doing. You can see the opposite of what you're doing because you're looking into a mirror. Yeah, like they have to do pictures. Oh, good. That's it. Like just... Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. that's right. And they're the, that's the what I started. Started, but... Okay. So does everybody understand the task? Mirror tracing task. Yeah. So it's staying inside the lines, and it's nice and quantifiable because there's two things I can count: how long it takes you to finish staying inside the star, and I can see what it comes across the line. Beautiful. Classic task. It's something you, the thing is for motor learning, you always need something someone has never done before. You've never done this before. Chances are. It's like there's work that was done, uh, the stuff looking at spatial differences between men and women, uh, and, and women on their uh, menstrual cycle, different parts of the menstrual cycle. Uh, is the hormone levels affect their spatial ability? It's a hard thing to test because almost every spatial task is something someone's done before, so you have people. Um, throw Nerf balls at a Velcro target underhand while wearing prisms that shift the world over 45 degrees. That's hard, and it's heavily spatially loaded, but you can learn to do it. Uh, and it, it takes women longer depending on how long. It, it's, it's a small difference, it's a real difference, but it's small. It doesn't matter. The point is, this is hard, but learnable. So she takes Brenda Miller, takes HM into the lab, at Montreal Neurological Institute, which is in the west end zone of Molson Stadium, the home of Montreal Alouettes. And lo and behold, they knew this. Brings it to the next day. She has no idea who he is. Sorry, he has no idea who she is. She knows exactly who he is. But he can do this perfectly. Just like you'd be able to accept you go. Why am I here again, Brenda? <laughs> But you can do it. He's got no problem, they said. So today we say he has no episodic memory, but he can learn what we call that procedural memory. Okay. That's pretty compelling. It's showing that there's different kinds of learning, not just one kind of learning, which is stimulus and response, which is basically what the behaviorists are saying. This is evidence against their view. She's well into her 90s. She still works, though she's pretty retired-ish now. You know. But when she won the Hebb Award, which was pretty amazing, the award for Canadian sort of outstanding 
Lifetime Achievement Award in Canadian Psychology. It's called the Donald Hebb Award. And she won it and she did her PhD with Donald Hebb. Right? She's from England, from the UK originally. Um, moved to Canada where her husband was working on radar, like secret research on radar, and then later worked on a thing called the Manhattan Project, and uh, eventually built the first nuclear reactor in Canada. I mean, they're obviously very smart people. And she had trouble finding an academic job at first, but then got a job at the University of Obeyes teaching psychology in French. She says, oh, right, I can speak French. So she, then she quits the job because she only had a master's degree and a PhD because it was a different time. Nowadays, you got a job. Amazing woman. So he could learn stuff, but he couldn't remember it. So there must be different memory systems. That I mean, we're now getting, we got Chomsky coming in saying, Language is special. We got Brenda Scoville and Miller with the original talking with the case. She worked with HM until he dies in 1999, sorry, 2008. Pretty exciting. Like, and that's in Canada. And she's doing this in Montreal. Um, a guy I know. Um, guy with grad school, did a postdoc with Brandon Miller. Brandon Miller is such a big deal that when he met with her, she's like, you know, I don't know if I have any money to support you. Just a second. And she made a phone call and she suddenly had $30,000 to pay. Because she's Brandon Miller. And it's not because of her name, it's because she's such a damn good scientist. I really, the thing is, you can't give a Nobel posthumously. She's really old. I really want her to win. Because she should. I mean, she's famous. Like, that's huge. And I got to meet her. Oh. Uh, I got to hang out with her in Newfoundland. That's uh, convocation in 2001 at Grenfell College of Moral University of Newfoundland. We gave her an honor degree. And I got to hang out with her. Yeah, she's like, I, I, I carried her all the way to convocation. Just <laughs> this tiny little British woman. But she's so Canadian, she's so British in her mannerisms, because she's very quiet, very polite, um, has this really sort of cute 1940s English accent, like she sounds like the Queen of England in 1940, like it's really <laughs> upper class, but, and she's tiny, all she, this is right during, uh, this is 2001, yeah, because John was, yeah, it's 2001, and she was there for three days, so I was like hurting to camp, I, I Got made sure she got to the hotel on time, I made sure she got the convocation, I made sure that after the president's dinner I got her into a taxi, all that stuff. And I thought, I'm gonna get to talk science with her. And all she does, we pick her up at the airport, and Cornerbrook is about 70 kilometers from the closest airport, which is Deer Lake, so we drive to Deer Lake. One of the guys from physical plant, you know, an official university fan, and I pick her up. And um, all she wants to do is talk about hockey. <laughs> she wants to talk about, she's a huge Canadian fan. And she just talks about hockey, talks about hockey, talks about hockey. And then that night, there's the president's dinner, so there's a big gala reception thing. I've got a shirt that has a button up, you know, not a t-shirt, and I'm wearing a jacket. Hard to imagine. 
shoes that aren't running shoes. And she says to me, you know, and she's again, she's like, at this point, she's only like 88 years old or something. And she says, I think I should go back to the hotel and get tires. Cool, we'll get a cab. No, so I get a cab. She says, oh, by the way, I think I saw you checking the score. Was the score in the hockey game? And I said, we're up three to one with a minute left. She said, that's very good. Because then, then we have three games to nothing against Carolina. I pick her up in the morning, get the cap, and she said, did we win? And I said, no. They scored two, and then that rookie kid, Eric Cole, scored an overtime loss, one three. She said, no, they did not. I said, no, they did. She said, at least tell me Toronto lost. I said, no, they won. She said, you young man, and I'm 40, you young man of bad luck, and I'll never speak to you about hockey again. That's wonderful. <laughs> she was so cool. And the best communication speech you ever, she, she called herself a member of the class in 2001. She talked to the students. She didn't talk about her. And she, if anybody can talk about how awesome they are, it's her. She, did, she gave a 10-minute speech about what a privilege it was to be there and how wonderful it was and how the world is a great place to live and try cool, new, interesting things. It's so good. And, um... She was 88 when she graduated? Well, no, that was, no. That's, that's, that's convocation, that's when she's getting an honorary degree. Oh, okay. Yeah, the one she got before that was from a little school called Cambridge. I mean, she's got like 19 honorary degrees, one of those ones. And it was just me and my buddy Dan, like, you know what? Why don't we, wow. Why don't we see, why don't we let her get one? Why don't we, why don't we say she should get one? And then she'll never come. And maybe she will, and she did. So, that was cool. So, we talked then about people's sort of memory systems. You got people like Endel Tolving, there's Endel, uh, talking about episodic and semantic memory. I may call him Endel, none of you may call him Endel because you must have a PhD to call him Endel, but he invites you to call him Endel. He's very intense, he's a very nice guy, but he's ever formal. And there is a running joke at the University of Toronto when Daniel Schachter got his PhD, and under Tolving, and whenever you get your PhD from Tolving, he Everybody has their own thing. Usually it's congratulations, doctor, whomever. He always says, you know, call me Engel. And Dan Schachter said, you can call me Dr. Schachter. No one knows if it's true, but it's a story all U of T graduate students are told. Uh, Craig and Lockhart in University of Toronto talked about levels of processing. They talked about deep versus shallow levels of processing. This is not a stimulus response. I couldn't find a picture of Bob Lockhart. Who's that's Craig? He studies a lot of stuff now. He's the guy's both retired, of course, but he's, he's studying stuff about uh, really into like memory and aging. And at graduate student parties, was always by the keg. Oh. I can tell you that too. Um, and Al Pavio at University of Western Ontario talked a lot about imagery. There's Al. He recently died, sadly. Um, the idea that it's easier to remember concrete words than non-concrete words. So like. Table and trigger is remember the words like justice and freedom, because you can imagine it's a dual coding hypothesis. And you had a debate for years with this guy who had a, uh, who said that wasn't true, and it was just an artifact, and the guy named Zen and Polish put in the office across the hall from at West. And when I was the uh, I think it was the vice president or something in the psychology club in the fourth year, we went to Pollution and Pavio and said, would they come to a pub night and have an arm wrestling match to just determine the whole thing? And Al said, sure. And Sam said, you know that Al was a bodybuilder and was Mr. Ontario in 1959, right? No. Hmm. 
super nice guys, all these guys, really interesting, really powerful, important people in the history of, in the cognitive revolution. And even when the behaviors were the strongest in animal learning, um, this took a little later, this wasn't in the 60s and 70s, it's more into the 70s and 80s, but you've got people like my PhD supervisor, Sarah Shuttleworth, that's at the party for me saying goodbye and moving away. You can't tell, but my hair is tied back in a ponytail halfway on my back. It's a different time. Bill Roberts, University of Western Ontario, uh, probably didn't, he does a PhD, has a job, and decides, you know what, I want to learn more about cognitive psychology, quits his job, and goes and becomes a postdoc at University of Toronto with Tolvin. And he said at one point, he'll say, why are you ordering rats? <laughs> because he wanted to do this animal uh, uh, cognition stuff. I did buy their postdoc. Uh, now Camel in Nebraska, who's Camel, Shuttleworth, these kind of people really started talking about evolution, and they started talking about biology and neuroscience and not just behavior and cognition. And the largest group of people who study comparative cognition is actually, or comparative psychology nowadays, and animal learning is called the, the uh, Comparative Cognition Society and the Conference of Comparative Cognition every year. The word cognition is important there. So now, even people that study animal learning study animal cognition. Can you imagine studying psychology without cognition? I don't know. I can't. I, I, it was like that for a long time, but I don't think you can imagine it. Can you imagine psychology without saying, well, I have cognitive neuroscience? Neuroscience is interesting. Petri dish neuroscience is neat. Patch clamps and getting ion flows. And that's all very cool, but... The only reason people are doing that is so they can understand brains and brains lead to behavior and cognition. And this is what people used to do. Can you imagine studying memory without using the word memory? It's just weird, right? Um, men internal mental events. That was the thing that was always pissing off Skinner and Watson. Don't study internal mental events. That's what we study. The behavior is a way to figure out what the internal mental events are. And I think you probably noticed the Canadian content in this, and that wasn't just because I'm Canadian. That's because we were a, we played a pivotal role in the cognitive revolution in this country. Um, as I've said, I don't know why that is, but if you look at cognitive psychology, you look at animal cognition, you look at cognitive neuroscience, for some reason, if you look at editorial boards of journals, for example, we're way overrepresented. We should be about 10% compared to the Americans. There's 10 times as many Americans as Canadians, there's 10 times as many Americans as there are Canadians. Yet, it's not like that. It's not like that. I don't know why. I think it just gets sort of self-perpetuated. One of the reasons, I think, is because of what happened in U of T in the 1940s, just after the 1950s, just after the war. Roger Myers takes, uh, gets this, I, I, the, 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 
chair of the department of U of T, and says, I'm, we're going to have a scientific psychology department, no more applied, none. And they said, nope, no more applied. And they don't have, they, they still don't really, there's a department at Boise, but that's separate from the psychology department, the main campus, St. George, and they um, just started, he just started hiring people. He just poached people from other universities. So fine, we're going to be the greatest psychology department in the world. They played it to basically the New York Yankees system. Just going to sign a bunch of free agents. And that's what they did. So you get people like Tulping and Craig and Lockhart and all these guys in one place. And they're training all these graduate students from all over the world. And there was a time in the 1990s, uh, well, from the 70s to the 90s, the most, most, there was more research centered at the University of Toronto than any other department in the world. Um, the most cited paper in the history of experimental psychology is Craig and Lockhart's 1973 Levels of Processing paper. And the interesting thing is, um, the only reason Craig's name is first is that he won a coin toss. He won a coin toss, he's a joke about it. That's awesome. And he wrote a paper later, Lockhart and Craig, and balance goes, you know, he said as much. So, I mean, and then this happens, of course, if there's that happening in Toronto, that happens at Queens and at Windsor and McGill and UBC because they're competing against Toronto for graduate students. So the world changes drastically. Yeah, but would you say that UT is still the best? Um, I wouldn't say that. Probably not. I wouldn't say it had the cachet it had was probably peaked in the in the early nineties. Um, just because of the, all the people who were there, all those free agents that Rush and Myers signed in the sixties, um, were hitting about. We're getting into their 50s at that point when you're going to get super productive. Um, and they were still hiring young people all the time. The problem is in the early 90s, the job market for PhDs was really rough, so it was hard to get a job anywhere. So they didn't hire a lot of people, and they even let some people go who were amazing. Not let them go, let, they were on contracts, and they didn't get them tenure-tracked. It's like, no one's fired. It's not like me. Um, people ended up going to great places at some point. But I would say that U of T still has a, a good reputation. Yeah. The department you go to doesn't matter a whole lot for graduate school. It's that you did it. It's, it's more of matters what you did with most things. Like what your supervisor was. Yeah. And like, I didn't know when I applied to U of T, I had no idea. Because I probably should have read that book that Chris was looking at, but I really didn't. <laughs> like, closely. At least you're honest. No, I didn't read too closely. I, I skimmed it. I got the, the gist. So what ended up happening was I applied to U of T, man. I don't know. I mean, I got in, and I did everything you're not supposed to do. Uh, well, I was. I wrote Sarah Schroeder with a letter because not everybody had email back. I had email, but I didn't know she did. So I wrote. I wrote her a letter, and she replied. I'm on staff. So. She replied to your letter? Yeah, she wrote a letter back. That's how people used to communicate. No, like, did, she, did she just write on the sabbatical? Uh, no, I'm, I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry I can't take any students this year because it's going to be very tough for me because I'm on sabbatical this year. I will just, I will just come back if you were to come. It wouldn't work out. Uh, I think you should contact David Sherry in the psychology department. He does very similar work. Actually, now it's my daughter's supervisor. So I write David Sherry a letter, and he's like, I don't have any room in my lab. Have you talked to Sarah Shuttleworth? <laughs> so I apply to UFT anyway, and I apply to Sarah's lab anyway. Because nice. I'm an idiot. I shouldn't have done it. But I had really good letters of recommendation. Right? It's a good journey, so 
Then I got this letter in February, which I still have a copy of. Um, that uh, I'm going to get all choked up because it's really emotional. Um, it uh, starts out and it just says, Dear David, when you come to my lab, it's like, oh, I guess I'm in then. This is before I was officially accepted. And she signed it with a, with a fountain pen with Brownie, which is which I found out later. She always used the same uh, fountain pen when she was writing something important. So it was neat. Um, so yeah, I did everything wrong. I shouldn't have done it that way. for listening to the lecture um all of the audio is available of course on itunes or whatever podcatcher you're using just search for da- uh, dr dave broadbeck's uh, psychology lectures now going university which is the most ungainly title ever uh these are released under a sh- uh, um, creative commons copyright share like 3.0 canada uh you can't use these for commercial purposes um you feel free to share them uh and feel free to mash them up any way you want but if you do that that means i get to do the same thing with your stuff Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, 
episode <laughs> lecture uh, is uh, available. They're all podcasts, uh, like Podsafe Music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So, uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're, they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.